as Roger was reading Psalm 109 this morning, a certain part of it sticks out in my mind as a reminder that that actually does speak, at least partly, about Jesus. In fact, Peter quotes verse 8 of Psalm 109, talking about the fact that it should be that another will take his office. And Peter relates that to Christ's betrayal by Judas. And it is Judas that Psalm 109 ultimately does indeed speak of, as the Spirit led Peter to give reference to that portion of Scripture with regard to the fact that Judas needed to be replaced by another. So that 109 Psalm, if you reread it with Jesus in mind, I think you'll see some of the things that Peter, through the Spirit, saw as well. In chapter 27, where we have been in Matthew's Gospel, we will continue to finish our study in chapter 27 today. And you all might say, well, finally. But it's important that we have taken the time that we did through this one chapter because it is so all-inclusive with regard to the final days of our Lord. The chapter began, you'll recall, with the trial of Jesus before Pilate. And then we looked at the fact that the Roman guards were treating him so terribly before leading him to be crucified. And then it gives a very short description of the crucifixion itself and those who were surrounding the cross as he was bearing that burden of our sins upon the cross until he finally said, it is finished. And last time we were here, we looked at the fact that he died on that cross for the sins of the world. His last words written by Matthew were very significant. Written by John were very significant. Written by Luke and Mark, all of them very significant. Seven sayings of Christ on the cross. And I encourage you to read through the gospel records, all of them, to remind yourself of what it was that he did for you. Today, we're going to be looking at, again, this last portion of Matthew chapter 27. We're going to begin with verse 57. He has died, and now we find the final things that are recorded by Matthew with regard to this fateful day, the Passover lamb, slaughtered. And now this portion records that which follows. He's placed into his final resting place, or so they thought. Read with me. Verse 57, chapter 27 says this, Now, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, We remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said 
After three days, I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. So that last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are here, Lord God, to study your word. And it brings us to this place of great sorrow, this place of great uncertainty for the disciples who followed you for so many days in your ministry on earth. It brings to a conclusion that which the Pharisees and scribes had sought. At least, that is what they believed. We know the outcome. We know the results of all of these things. But it's wonderful for us, I believe, to have this opportunity to look at these words that have been written by Matthew, and we'll be looking also at some of the other references to this event, so that we might be able, Lord God, to apply it somehow to our own lives. And I pray that, Lord, you would make it so by the power of your Holy Spirit as we study your word together in Jesus' holy name. Amen. That's the account in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. Very brief. He mentions Joseph of Arimathea. And he says he was a rich man. But I want to take you next to another account, this time in Mark's Gospel. And Mark will give us a few more details that Matthew does not give us with regard to this man who is from the town of Arimathea, whose name is Joseph. Matthew does record just that amount of information about him, but Mark says this in Mark chapter 15, beginning with verse 42. Mark 15, verse 42 says, Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. And when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he, Joseph, bought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen, And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. So again, Mark gives a little bit more detail about this event. He tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the council. That means he was on on the Sanhedrin, the 70 rulers of Israel, chosen for the purpose of leading the people in their religious system. Very important figure. That means he likely would have been at the first trial at at, uh, uh, Annas' house and also at Caiaphas' house when they were bringing their accusations that night before the crucifixion. He would have been opposed to that, but he was 
apparently not willing to reveal the fact that he himself was actually a follower of Jesus. That's what Matthew says. He was a secret follower of the Lord. Did he speak up at that event? We're not told. But it is apparent from what Matthew records that he was, even up till the death of Christ, a secret follower of Christ. He was afraid to reveal his commitment to Jesus. He was afraid of rejection from the other members of the Sanhedrin, perhaps. He was afraid of being exposed as, as one who followed Christ. And by that time, obviously, they had already made an edict in Jerusalem that said, if anybody declares himself to be a follower of Christ, he is to be excommunicated. So there was a great deal of caution in this man, who was a great leader, who did not want to give up that which he had, at least not then. Luke tells us also something a great deal more. And by the way, Mark, as I have read, also gives us more detail about the confrontation between those elders and Pilate. Because Mark tells us what Matthew doesn't say with regard to the statement that was made by Pilate. And the question that he asked, he's dead already? That came as a surprise to him because crucifixion normally took at least a couple of days and sometimes weeks. So it was a real surprise to him that he was dead and he didn't want to trust those men who were Jews. He wanted to hear it from his own sources. So he calls for a centurion who was there to confirm that yes, indeed, he was dead. And he was. Remember, we were told in the Gospel records about the crucifixion that Jesus Breathe his last saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it was then that a soldier took a spear and thrust it into Jesus' side. And when he pulled it out, blood and water flowed. John witnessed that and recorded it for us. He was indeed dead. The centurion confirmed that. So Pilate gave the body to Joseph. Note also that it tells us in Mark's Gospel that Joseph took down... Jesus from the cross. He had some help. And we're going to look at that next. In John's Gospel, chapter 19. John 19, beginning with verse 38, says these things. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. So now we find out that a man named Nicodemus joined Joseph in this taking down of the body of Jesus after he died on the cross and prepared the body for burial. Now, the gospel records tell us clearly that 
He was buried in a rich man's tomb. That is so very, very significant also because it was prophesied by Isaiah. Chapter 53, verse 9 of Isaiah tells us that he died with transgressors and he was put into a rich man's tomb, just exactly as it had been prophesied. That's what took place with the burial of Jesus. Remarkable fulfillment of all the Scriptures. And we focus on these fulfillments for a very particular reason. It's evident, if you have been with me here at any length of time, that I have mentioned often the importance of scriptural fulfillment. Things that were written in the Old Testament by prophets of old, long before any of these events that we've looked at over the last several weeks, they all were fulfilled exactly as it was recorded in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before the events took place. This confirms to me, and I hope it does to all of you, that this book that you have in your presence is a holy book indeed, written by men of old, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is given. Given by God. For edification, for instruction, for doctrine, for teaching. These things are true. Paul tells us all Scripture, everything that you have, Old Testament and New, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The writer of Hebrews says that in olden times, times long before, God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1. Those are the things that we believe and teach and adhere to. And it's for the purpose of knowing what it is that is yet to come that we look at those things that have already been. Because the Bible talks a great deal about things yet to come. And if all of those things were indeed fulfilled, and they were, then how is it that anyone would have any doubts about what is yet to happen? Now, I'm deviating from my original intent here just for a moment because I want to make it clear. You and I are living in the last days. That doesn't mean that any of us knows how many days are left. But one of the things that I can tell you is we're closer today than we were since we first believed. That's a pretty obvious statement, isn't it? Every day that goes by, you're one day closer to that eventuality of Jesus coming again for His church. That's you and me if you believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's no doubt in my mind that that is going to happen sometime in the very near future. Things are indeed shaping up. A lot of people think that the world is coming apart. According to the Word of God, things are coming together. Exactly as God had intended. And it was important to me, I hope it is to you as well, that we keep on looking at what is going on in the world and use that information that we have from the Word of God that demonstrates those things that are happening today are already predicted, prophesied in the Word of God, and they would, would be very, very smart if they would look into these things and realize that the time is short. It's a great ministry tool. When somebody comes up to you and says, what's going on in the Middle East? You've got the answer. Ezekiel 38. When somebody comes along and says, 
Why is Israel so important to everybody? You've got the answer. Because God says He's going to stand in Jerusalem and He's going to reign in that city as King of all on David's throne in Jerusalem. Well, isn't Jerusalem going to be a Palestinian city? No, God won't allow that. Is Israel going to be annihilated by Iran? Well, that's what Iran thinks. As a matter of fact, Iran is very, very much involved with Hezbollah and Hamas and those who are in power in the Palestinian Authority, hoping that when Abbas dies, they'll put somebody else in place that will be in alignment with what they want. And what they want is simply this, the total annihilation of Israel. The Jewish people need to go as far as they're concerned. They ain't going nowhere, people. They're sticking around because they're God's people. And they're there and have been since 1948 because God intended for that to be the case. Are you in doubt about any of these things? Read your Bible. And know it well. Because people are going to start asking questions. What about the things that are going on in our own country? Economic collapse, we've talked about that. It's becoming a very real possibility. The banks may or may not recover. We don't know that for a fact, but it looks as though things are happening. It would behoove those who are in real power that the United States economy would indeed collapse, along with European economies as well. It's possibly going to happen. I don't know when. I don't know if it's going to be because of what's going on with the banks today. But there is a very, very strong move among the elite to push toward a global economy, a global governance, the elimination of the major religions, especially Christianity and Judaism. Think about it. Doesn't that line up pretty well with what is likely going to happen someday soon when a Man is going to come on the scene, and it may or may not be before that Ezekiel war that I mentioned in chapter 38 of Ezekiel, but if it happens after that, there is going to be a solution. He's going to bring peace, and he's going to be identified as the Savior of the world. We call him the Antichrist. The Bible calls him the Beast. Book of Revelation is so very important to understand how those things will play out. So read your Bible Study it. Know it well. And then let them know who don't know it. i got to get back to this. Nicodemus. He came to Jesus by night. Early on in Jesus' earthly ministry. John chapter 3 tells us about him. Remember, he was a Pharisee. A very well-known Pharisee. A great leader of Israel. In fact... Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel. That's quite an important uh, position to hold in Israel, in Judea. Nicodemus was a highly respected individual. He came to Jesus, and one of the first things he said was, We know, listen, we know, he's talking about himself and those who were associates of him, we know that you are from God, because no man could do these things unless he was from God. Nicodemus admitted that. 
And then Nicodemus was in that conversation at night with Jesus. He came at night because he didn't want to be discovered by his associates. And like Joseph of Arimathea, he was a secret follower of Jesus. After that encounter, when Jesus said, I tell you the truth, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, what what are you talking about? You've got to be born again. I can't enter my mother's womb a second time, can I? And Jesus said, no, you got it all wrong. That's a spiritual thing I'm talking about, not flesh. It's spiritual. You must be born again. And then, of course, in that same passage, Jesus gave this wonderful statement that most Christians know by heart. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should... Come on. Whosoever should believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Nicodemus heard the Gospel. And apparently Nicodemus believed what Jesus said. But he was again a secret believer. He remained a Pharisee, a teacher of Israel. Throughout those years that Jesus was teaching in Galilee and ultimately in Judea, and then on the cross, hanging there, Nicodemus was aware of all of those things taking place. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, both of them secret followers of Christ, mentioned in the Gospel records so that we could see something that I believe is so very, very important for all of us. Bill and Gloria Gaither are entertainers. They're a great Christian couple, leaders, uh, singers that have written many, many songs and have been the blessing of many, many people throughout the several decades now that they've performed. They're quite old now, and I don't know if they're still performing, but the Billy, uh, or rather the, the Gaither Trio, was, was, was uh, very, very well known, and they've recorded many, many various albums. And one of the songs that they wrote, and I'm not sure if it was Gloria or Bill who wrote this, but the chorus of the song is one that stuck in my mind, and I was reminded of it as I was preparing this message. It says this, I lost it all to find everything. I died a pauper to be born a king. When I learned how to live, or how to lose rather, when I learned how to lose, I found out how to live. I lost it all to find everything. I would suggest to you that as you read through this passage that we've looked at today and the other passages that we've looked at as well, including the passage in Luke chapter 23, beginning around the same uh, area of 40 to 50 or so, where Luke records the same record. You look at these things and you have to realize, I hope, that these individuals that are referenced in the gospel record lost it all. Nicodemus and Joseph, both very wealthy. And by the way, it doesn't really mention the wealth of Nicodemus except for the fact that he brought a hundred pounds of spices for the burial of Jesus. 
you don't do that without having the money to pay for such an exorbitant amount. It was that which is used for the burial of kings. Nicodemus had the right idea in getting that much gathered together, and he had the resources to do it. He was a wealthy man. And again, we're told that Joseph of Arimea was, Arimathea was very wealthy also. Associating with the burial of Jesus Christ would have put them in a very precarious position as leaders in that religious system. They risked all of their wealth, all of their title, position, all of their respect. It was out the window, gone, no more. They were just common people who were discouraged, disgraced, excommunicated, and brought to nothing because of their faith in Jesus Christ. These are two men that lost it all to find everything. And they stand as examples for all of us as well. I'm reminded in when I think of that fact that they lost it all to find everything, what did Jesus do? Jesus lost it all. He gave His life for others. But He lost everything in addition to His willingness to go to the cross and die for your sins, did He not lose His glory that He had with His Father from the foundations of time? Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 says, He who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God because He was the Son of God. He was with the Father. He was God as the Father was God. They were united as the God of Israel, Father and Son, with the Holy Spirit, three in one, tree, triune, trinity. He left it all to do what He intended to do for your sins and mine. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For He made Him, God the Father, made Him, Jesus the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become righteous, who knew nothing of righteousness. You see, what the Bible teaches is, our righteousness is as filthy rags. So we needed to have an exchange because of the sin nature. Every one of us born in sin. None of us capable in our own strength, by our own merit, to enter into the presence of God who will not allow sin in His presence. We would be rejected from the presence of God except for this one fact. When Christ died on the cross, He paid the price. The ransom that we owed, was taken care of by Him. Paid in full. To tell us that it is finished. And having done that, He now then offers that salvation that He paid that price for to all. 
And all that is necessary is for anyone to come to Him by faith to receive the gift of salvation that He has made available by grace, through faith. His work on the cross. Simply say, I believe it. I receive it. I first recognize that I need it because I'm a sinner. And if I can do that, if I have done that, and I've taken the time to express that confidence in what Christ has done for me, and have confessed it to God the Father, that I need that salvation, He gives it. And in the giving of that salvation, He takes our sinfulness, our sin nature, our unrighteousness, and exchanges that for His righteousness. And He imputes to us, gives to us, puts it upon us, His own righteousness, so that we can stand in the presence of a holy God, and what God sees is no longer the sinful man or woman that we once were, but He sees Christ in us. He sees Christ's righteousness, clothed in that righteousness, and that's why we are accepted in the Beloved, my friends. That's the only reason. Not because of what we have done, but because of what He has done for us. So again, He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And finally, I want to remind you also, this is what else He left. He said in verse 9 of chapter 8 of Second Corinthians, Paul writes these words, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you, through His poverty, might become rich. Again, an exchange has taken place. Poorness. <laughs> we place a lot of emphasis on personal wealth these days. And that's not a bad thing. It's good to prepare for the future and you need money, you need the resources to be prepared for those events that might happen in the future. Well, Jesus had everything it was His. The psalmist says, of God, He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's just a short expression of the vast wealth of our Lord and Savior. But you and I were paupers. We had nothing. Nothing to offer. Because it's not money that God is interested in. It's your heart. And you couldn't offer that because your heart was stained in sin. So He gave you a new heart. That's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ manifest in us. He was rich, yet He made Himself to be poor. Again, in Philippians chapter 2, it says that He humbled Himself to become a man like you and me. He humbled Himself. He gave up everything that he had. And again, Paul expresses that so beautifully here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Though he was rich again, it says, yet for your sakes he became poor. He gave it all. So knowing that Jesus gave everything so that you and I could have everything, knowing that Nicodemus and Joseph were willing to give up all of the, what they had, 
all of their possessions, all of their wealth, all of their position, their, their recognition among the men that they served alongside with for so many years. Lost it all. Defined everything. They died paupers. And that is recorded in extra-biblical tradition that they both of them lost it all. In fact, there's a place in one of the museums, I can't remember which it is, but there was a letter found. A letter that was written apparently by Nicodemus's daughter who expressed the fact that she was living in such great wealth but there came a time when they lost it all. The family became paupers. And she was struggling to stay alive, finding enough food to eat to survive. That could only happen if Nicodemus did what we are saying he did. He proclaimed himself to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I believe he indeed did lose it all. I believe Joseph lost it all. They learned how to lose. They found out how to win because those earthly possessions were nothing to them. I think also of the Apostle Paul. Another great Pharisee of the Pharisees. A man who had great credentials. He was the favorite student of Gamaliel, the greatest teacher of Israel. Paul had a great future ahead of him as a Pharisee. He began after the resurrection of Jesus to come against those who were followers of Jesus because they were making such a huge dent on the income of the leaders in Jerusalem. So Paul sought to have letters written so that they could be arrested, some of them killed, for their faith in Christ. On his way to Damascus to deliver those letters, he was intercepted. You know the story. Jesus came to him in a vision and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul asked a simple question, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus responded, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutes. It's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it, Paul? And that whole scene recorded in the book of Acts changed this man's life. He had great wealth. He had great future. But in that event, his heart was changed. His life was changed. His whole method of living was changed. He became a pauper instantly. And he followed Christ. And he served his Lord. No matter what came against him. And you read through the records in his own writing. And in the book of Acts, Paul suffered greatly for Christ's sake. Paul later will write in Philippians chapter 3 that it was his desire to know Him and the power of His resurrection and to know His suffering. I don't really want to know that kind of suffering. And it brings me to a conclusion about my own walk with the Lord. And I have to ask myself, and I hope that you are willing to ask this question also. Are you willing, am I willing to give it up, all of it, for Him? 
if these individuals were, and you read their stories, and you find out what they were willing to do for the sake of fulfilling that which Christ has accomplished in their own lives, that is what we should also be willing to do. I'm reminded that Paul writes also in Romans chapter 12, Offer yourselves up to God as living sacrifices. Paul tells us in other places, in Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in Him who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. He gave it up. But he gained much more. Paul also says elsewhere, to live is Christ. That was his position. But to die is gain. Paul wasn't afraid of death. Paul embraced death as an entrance into eternal life. And so should we all. Jesus himself said, anyone, anyone who serves him must be prepared that the world will hate you. And they may take your life. It's a possibility. We haven't seen that yet in this arena, this country in which we live, this country of great freedom, which is beginning to wane. But there are other places in the world, and you know them well, China, Iran, North Korea, some places in northern Africa, where people are dying for their faith. They're giving it all so that they can have life. They lost it all to find everything. I want to be that way in my walk with Christ. And I suspect that the majority of us here in this room would say the same. I want to be. But will we be? Are we now willing to do such things for Him? Let me submit to you that most of us would be hesitant except for the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us to enable us, to empower us, to give us that grace that we would need to stand in such a place as what these people have been willing to stand in. Matthew himself, the writer of this gospel that we've been looking at. Remember, Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors were hated by the Jews. And he himself, a Jew, was one who was despised by all of his neighbors because he was taxing them at Rome's advantage to take in excess of what even Rome had required so that he could pocket the rest and become a great wealthy man himself. And he was. But when Jesus came to him that fateful day in Galilee, he was seated at the custom booth. Jesus came along and looked straight into Matthew's eyes and he said, follow me. That's all he had to say. Matthew instantly got up and left his position of great wealth. Gave it all up. He could never go back to that again. By his willingness to stand and walk with Jesus, he left behind everything 
and could never return to it. I lost it all to find everything. I'm convinced Joseph would say those very words. I'm convinced Nicodemus would say those very words. Paul would say those very words. Matthew would say those words. Peter himself would say those very words. Would you? Would I? By the grace of God, the answer must be yes. Lose everything for him. He lost everything for you. But what about the others that recorded in Matthew's Gospel that we read about? The women. Mary, Magdalene. Mary, according to Mark, the mother of Joseph. These were followers of Jesus. But when Jesus was placed into the tomb, even though they had heard Jesus' words, on the third day I will rise again, it did not register. And they were mourning the, the loss of their leader. The one that they thought was going to sit on the throne of David was dead, buried in a grave. All they could do was hope that they could finish the work that Nicodemus and Joseph had begun by somehow on the day after the Sabbath, they could go to the tomb and have somebody roll that stone away so that they could finish the anointing of the body as was the Jewish custom. So they took note of where Jesus was buried for that particular reason. But they had no expectation beyond that. Peter and the rest of the apostles, other than John, none of them were at the cross when Jesus actually gave up the ghost. They all had scattered. They were all in hiding. They all had heard Jesus say, on the third day I will rise again, but it did not register. Even after the resurrection, and he appeared to most of them, Thomas wouldn't believe. Unless I see the nail prints in his hand, the scar, the wound in his side, I will not believe. I say all of these things because of what is recorded in the gospel record. Because when the men, the elders, came to Pilate, they remembered two things. They remembered that Jesus had said, after three days, I will rise. They believed that, that Jesus had said that, and they were fearful that that might possibly happen because they'd seen him do all those miracles. They didn't rule it out. His own disciples had. The women had. I don't know about Joseph and Nicodemus, but I'm having to assume that even though they were making a vocal statement about who they believed, did they believe the whole Message. We don't know. These men believed it. Not only that, they were fearful about it. So that's why they asked Pilate, let us have some kind of means by which we can keep that from happening. Because if we don't, his disciples will come and take the body and that next error would be worse than the first. Because they would be able to say then, He's risen from the dead. See, the tomb is empty. I'm impressed with the fact that they said that. It tells me that they expected that. And they didn't want it to happen. But they didn't know the power of God. 
They figured if they put a watch, a Roman guard of 16 soldiers, and sealed the tomb with a proper government seal, that there would be no possibility of that happening. They didn't know that the stone would be rolled away by a force greater than they were familiar with. It was God's own angels who came on that wonderful morning, which we will look at in a few weeks. But you see, they're they're, they're talking about a reality. They're, They're talking about something that they believe is going to take place. They were part in the proof of the resurrection. By saying what they said here, recorded here in the Gospel record, that it was likely that somehow he would indeed be raised from the dead, they wanted to eliminate that as any possible activity taking place at that time that Jesus had spoken. Three days. If nothing happened after three days, then they would be able to say, whew, we are finally done with this. They were wrong. They were desperately wicked men. Pilate's response? Remember, he didn't really want to put Jesus to death. And what Pilate must be thinking here is, hey, I don't want to have to deal with this anymore. Go ahead and take care of that so that we won't ever have that problem anymore. He was writing it off. He was saying, enough. In fact, the response that he gives implied here is one of very, very, well, insensitive and maybe even disgruntled with those people. You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as sure as you know how. (laughs) It wasn't sure enough, was it? They weren't willing to lose anything. Pilate wasn't willing to lose anything. They lost it all. They found nothing. Everything that they had did nothing for them. There was no benefit to them because it ended when they took their last breath. Just the opposite from what any one of us can say. They kept it all to lose everything. They died a rich man forsook being born as king. They didn't find out how to win. They found out how to lose for sure. And they did lose. Better now for all of us to say, I have lost it all to find everything. To say, I died a pauper to be born a king. When I learned how to lose, I found out how to win. Yes, I lost it all to find everything. Praise the Lord. I want to live my life, and I pray that you all do as well, with those words written on my heart. <laughs> 